0: Good afternoon everyone and welcome to the Art Gallery of New South Wales. It's wonderful to see so many of you here on the, uh, this, the first day of our exhibition, Francis Bacon, Five Decades. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of the land on which the gallery stands. And welcome to this opening program associated with the Francis Bacon Exhibition. The exhibition, uh, if you have already seen it, um, you'll know how impressive it is. It brings together works from the breadth of Bacon's career, from collections all over the world. And we feel very honoured to host such an extraordinary body of work from one of the most revered painters of the 20th century here at the Gallery. To mark this first day, we've put together a panel of Bacon experts, Martin Harrison, Margarita Kapok. Rebecca Daniels and our curator Tony Bond to discuss the exhibition and the artist's work in general. I'll leave it to our moderator, musician and broadcaster Emma Ayres to tell you a little bit more about our panellists. Emma will be familiar to many of you as the host of uh, Classic Breakfast on ABC Classic FM and from her several appearances here at the gallery and it's a pleasure to welcome her here to the gallery again. Uh, Before we begin, uh, I'll remind everyone to please switch off or silence your mobile phones and please join me in welcoming our guests to the stage.
1: Very much, ladies and gentlemen. It's a bit like getting into a space capsule sitting behind these um, microphones. Thank you very much for your warm welcome. It's so lovely to see so many of you here. And um, yes, I would love to introduce each member of the panel a little bit more detail, although I have a feeling that in an hour's time you'll know them quite well. So, first of all, the curator of the Francis Bacon exhibition, Tony Bond, um, the curator of Francis Bacon, Five Decades, and also assistant director curatorial at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. Tony, in the middle. And Margarita Kapok, just to my left here, and you have to admire Margarita's shoes as well at some point. Um, Margarita is the head of collections at Dublin City Gallery, The Hugh Lane, which houses the Francis Bacon Studio. It's okay, Francis is lovely, really. Margarita Capoc. And Rebecca Daniels. And Rebecca is the researcher on the forthcoming Francis Bacon, the catalogue Raisonne. Thank you very much for being here, Rebecca. And Martin Harrison at the end. Martin is a big fan of Joy Division which Martin might end up talking about at some point. And he also works a lot with Rebecca, so the editor of the forthcoming Francis Bacon Catalogue raisonné. And so all our guests today have contributed to the catalogue, which is available in the Art Gallery shop. And we're very, very grateful to all of you for coming here to Australia and um, taking time to speak to us today. So thank you very, very much. Now, just to let you know how this hour is going to happen, an hour can seem like quite a long time, so what we're going to do is we're going to have kind of Francis Bacon advertorials about every 10 minutes. We've asked each of the four panellists to um, choose a work by Bacon that they particularly want to talk about. So about every 10 minutes, um, we'll have a special slide. There'll be slides just kind of floating through anyway. Thank you very much to Josephine for doing that. Uh, But then... Uh, we will hear from each panellist, particularly about their views about uh, a a Bacon work. But I have to direct my first question to Tony, Tony Bond. Tony, congratulations, first of all, on the exhibition. Why Francis Bacon and why now, but also why not before now?
2: Actually, the best question is probably why not before now? Um, As you know, Francis has quite a few connections with Australia. Uh, but he never came, and there's never been a show. Uh, So clearly, it was time. That's part of the answer. Um, For me personally, I've always, since I was a student, thought that he's the most exciting painter. Um, You know, things moved on, we looked at other things, but really, when you come to look at painting, the way paint goes on the canvas, the way that with Francis, sometimes, when you look closely, you have no idea what's going on. But, you know, when you step back, you've got the incomplete sensation of, the figure there, um, that way of making with paint rather than drawing, which makes him so very different from Picasso, um, I, I think is quite exceptional, and there's no, um, there's no possibility of anybody doing Bacon, frankly. I mean, it would be doomed to failure to try and do Bacon. <laughs> I'm sorry if any of you are doing Bacon right now, but um, really, it, it's something you can't do again, because he is, I mean, he's a master of chance, And it was that idea, I mean, I think as much the ideas that he talked about in relation to his work that got me in as a student, and I think for a lot of artists, you know, the idea of kind of wrestling some resolution out of chaos, chance, discovering something you didn't know, because after all, if you knew what you were going to do, why bother? Um, I think that's true for any artist, but for Francis it was absolutely a kind of um, central tenet of his work. So, um, given that, and given the fact that he'd never been shown here, and given the fact that we sort of had a list of shows like, you know, Caravaggio, Picasso, Pissarro, Monet, thinking, well, who's up there? And I honestly think Francis is up there. So we did it.
1: Now, You, you go, right, OK, this is it. We're going to have a Francis Bacon ex- exhibition. But it's not that easy, is it? Where do you start?
2: Well, no, and, and in fact, because the Tate did the show... Essentially, it started in '28, I think, but it went um, through 2009, it went to the Prado and it went to the Met. So most of the key works had been off people's walls for over a year, um, and it was going to be hard. And in fact, Edmund at the time said, well, maybe you'd better leave it six months or so um, and let people recover. And I said, no way. Um, if I leave it six months, somebody else is going to get the damn thing, you know. Ah. So I was out there very quickly talking to the estate, talking to Martin, talking to the Tate. Um, and, in fact, in six months' time, when the Musée de de Ville de Paris and the um, Guggenheim Bilbao rang me up and said, we've been trying to do this show, but we've told you've been here already. Can we take it? I said, well, we'll see. But um, it, it, I was absolutely right. You know. um, but the great thing was that the estate lent us six. They offered me several more. Um, mm. I didn't really need more. I got it well covered, I think. Um, And uh, if you've been through the show, you might have noticed that there's five from the Tate. But when Nick Sirota was telling me, he said, I see, we've given you five? And I said, yes, Nick, five. thank you very much. And that really put us on a roll. And I I thought if I went out then and and quickly locked up, you know, the Met and, and Mama and Chicago and so on, Pompidou, we'd be home and host, so... Yeah. so but so it wasn't it's hard. I mean, it goes, you know, you write these letters to all these museum directors and nobody answers them. Martin's tried this, he knows exactly how it works. No answer at all. Um, and so you write a follow-up letter, you send emails to their assistants.
1: Yes, yeah, so at one point, does it become harassment?
2: <laughs> that's That's it. You know, that's when you actually ring up and say... Actually, I'm going to be in Zurich next Tuesday. I'd love to come and talk to you about the show. And suddenly a flurry of activity, and you have the meeting. And if you're persuasive enough, they say yes. Oh, fantastic. is it isn't, isn't always first go. Yeah.
1: Well, congratulations. So you, you've brought in Martin already. Martin, I guess you're a good person to talk to about um, Francis Bacon's life. What, for you is the defining, if maybe it's too broad a question, but what for you is the sort of defining characteristic of Francis Bacon?
3: It's not too boring, it's too difficult. Um, I mean, in a way, his life is uh, obviously um, absolutely intertwined with the work and he was, if you like, an unusual life, let's say, defined by, I suppose, um, the fact that at least he said he hated his parents, um, his father was a military man. He was a captain in the army. Bacon was uh, seemed a weakling. He suffered from birth from asthma. And I think, I suppose, his farmer wanted a strapping lad who's going to wield guns, you know, and he certainly didn't get that. Um, and whatever the truth of that is, so we only have a few quotations from Bacon during his lifetime, which make it clear he said he hated his father, didn't like his mother much. So he felt slightly an outcast. And And in a way, I suppose, lived the whole of his life um, on the edge of society. And as a homosexual, had to negotiate a whole life through, I mean, mostly um, after moving to England, he lived a large proportion of his life where it was illegal for a start. And he had to live through, um, uh, there was like the McCarthy witch hunts in New York. In America, there was a very similar thing going on in London in the early 1950s. And... It wasn't legal in England until 1967. So he, he did negotiate that very cleverly. I mean, it, it's not a story that's been told properly. There's not really a good biography of him yet, and certainly not a reliable one. Um, so all of those things, I suppose, I mean, I'm not a biographer, um, but all of those things no doubt contributed to making him the kind of artist he was and in a sense that uh, uh, Tony already mentioned the gambling I mean he, he literally gambled and when he had no money at all he'd spend all of it and more and then go begging to rich friends to gamble in casinos in the south of France mm-hmm. and he and until he started to make any money at all which wasn't until the 1960s he was usually broke, usually scrounging money there are many letters survived to rich patrons where he says, would you please send me what was then a, a huge amount, of 300 pounds to pay my tailor's bill he, he had handmade suits made in several Row, always, despite the fact he was broke and there are letters where he says, I'm going off to Cannes or Monaco um, to earn some money which means gambling, and he felt he could win and of course that joins very much then with his painting, which he always talked about as happening by chance. I mean, that, we get into the area where I'm too specialist probably for, for a general audience's liking, but um, the, that obviously relates very much to his painting, which he spoke about. I mean, he, he hated to speak about it. He would never speak about what his paintings meant he said things like, half the time I don't know
2: what they mean myself. That's and do you think that that's there. common
3: amongst artists, that they don't want to speak
1: about their paintings? Tony, is that, is that common amongst the artists that you've met?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I tried writing 10,000 words on Anselm Kiefer and sent it to him and said, what do you think? And he said, if you think that, Tony, that's lovely. And I said, no, am I getting warm? No. Um, like it, but, you know, I couldn't think that. And I think a lot of us don't want to be... Um, you know, definitively interpreted and I think you know, Francis very definitely didn't want to be definitively interpreted by anybody mm-hmm. um, which is somebody has suggested I can't remember who, probably Russell maybe one of the reasons he liked Duchamp so much because Duchamp was so slippery so successful at delaying that kind of um, interpretation but you know uh, I think it's not uncommon
1: mm-hmm. and re- Rebecca what is it for you that re- what really fascinates you about Francis Bacon?
4: Probably through doing a catalogue resonates very much a factual book. And I think I there's so much written on him and interpreted on him. And I quite like the fact that we're just looking at facts. And sometimes that can give you a completely different impression of him. In particular, there was one painting um, that was done in the 70s. And it was part of a series that probably related to the Mafia. And I'd been reading a lot of um, interpretive material. And it was talking about George Dyer, one of his lovers, um, saying that this painting showed him gnarled and twisted and in this agony of this relationship where Bacon was dominating him and he felt trapped. And I was getting quite frustrated by it. And then I found some diary entries um, that his gallerist had recorded. And that week, Bacon actually had a tooth abscess and had been at the dentist and had been in terrible pain. And when you looked at this painting, it was clearly a painting of him at the dentist in agony because he has a lot of sort of circles on the mouth. The teeth are just clenched. And at that point I just kind of realised I felt more comfortable looking at him through the facts. And in a way you do need to strip back a lot of what's been written Mm. about him because a lot of it is very, very um, out on a limb in a sense when you do look at the person.
1: And Margarita, I guess you have, again, a a slightly different perspective for Francis Bacon, because you're um, working at the Dublin Gallery, where his studio is. We're just seeing a slide of that now. That's
5: right. Um, This is an image of Francis Bacon's studio, where he lived and worked from 1961 until his death in 1992. So this, uh, in this small room that just measured 12 by 24 feet, this is where he produced many of his iconic and powerful paintings. And this is where his triptychs were produced, which he obviously couldn't see all in a row because the room was too small. So How does
1: that compare with, say, this um, size of this uh, well, stage?
5: Well, uh, 12 by 24 is, yes, it's probably from the end there. I had been mean, obviously wider, probably from here yeah. to about there and then from where Tony's sitting to the wall. Right, so really, really small. Really small, yeah. yeah. And it was in Seven Rees Mews in South Kensington, a lovely location uh, on a quiet cobblestone lane, and that's where he moved. And he lived there and he worked there. So at the top of his... He had this very steep staircase with a rope, a ship's rope as a banister, and at the top of the stairs then on the right-hand side you had his studio... And then to the left, you had his bed sitting room. But the studio is really intrinsically linked with his works. I mean, the bare light bulbs that you see here, they feature extensively in his paintings. But, of course, the most important thing is the contents of the studio. And you're looking at over 7,500 items in that studio Mm -hmm. and much more, of course, that he he disposed of over the years. And uh, so within that, you have, you know, you've, 2,000 samples of the artist's materials, which is fascinating because Bacon had no formal training as an artist. So it gives a huge insight into the range of of materials that he was using. I mean, aside from pigment, obviously he used household paint for the backgrounds and uh, some of the triptychs that you'll see, the ones from the 1970s, the backgrounds have been painted using just ordinary paint rollers mm. um, and all the different things that that he used to mix his paints. You also have obviously many, many photographs and photography became very important for Bacon because he preferred to work you know, using photographs as aid memoirs rather than having a, a person sit for him and pose in a studio as, as an artist like Lucien Freud. Would have, and also just the range of books and materials that you that are found in the studio. you can see them teetering up there in piles, yes. books on things like crime, medical textbooks, history, politics, literature, and as well, of course the works of other great artists that he admired, people like Michelangelo Velasquez and Van Gogh, and Degas, of course. So this, uh, the studio, um, as you see it there, has been reconstructed. It was moved lock, stock, and barrel. Um, it was presented to the gallery that I work for in Dublin, the Hugh Lane Gallery. And
1: why Why was that? Why, why the Hugh Lane?
5: Well, it was partly, I suppose, um, fortuitous. I mean, Bacon was born in Dublin, so he had an Irish connection. He was born in, in central Dublin, and he spent the first 16 years of his life in County Kildare, which is just outside Dublin. His father's um, involvement with with horses had brought them to Ireland, and now he he did return to Ireland briefly um, over the years, but he he didn't. You know, obviously it was it has been I suppose downplayed to a certain degree, but of course they're very important years. Um, after Bacon died in 1992, the studio remained largely untouched until um, our. Director Barbara Dawson was involved with negotiations with the Bacon estate. And John Edwards, who was the sole heir of the the entire estate. So this was uh, his final
1: lover. Yes, yeah,
5: yeah, and and more a companion, really, Mm. um, because they they both had other relationships. Um, He presented the studio to the city of, of Bacon's birth in 1998. And as soon as that happened, obviously the proviso was that we were going to reconstruct the studio in the Hugh Lane. And uh, as soon as that happened, obviously, we're presented with this. How do you remove this? Uh, Seven and a half thousand items. So uh, it was decided that a team of archaeologists were best equipped to uh, <laughs> take on this project. So a team of Irish archaeologists flew over. So you had a team set up. And archaeologists, of course, are used to dealing with this, these volumes of material. So they set out this, you know, they did a survey um, set out um, a, a grid system And over the course of two weeks, everything was removed from the Only two weeks? Two weeks, yeah. And uh, you had curators and conservators then working in a separate room, making a note of, of what the items were and bagging them up. And, of course, we had to be able to know the precise location of every single item in its original location in order to be able to reconstruct it in Dublin. So um, when the material came over to uh, Dublin, it filled a room in the gallery, just these boxes, um, and we started cataloguing and I worked with a team of three guys cataloguing for two years going through everything. Flicking through every book uh, very, very carefully, photographing everything and making catalogue entries. And it was just an amazing experience to open the boxes and just get that really distinct smell of dust and pigment um, coming out. It was just such a, a unique, unique project. So then after two years, and this is the, the you have a selection of this archive of material on display here to complement um, Tony's exhibition. So we have 70 items that Bacon would have used as source material. Yeah. And then when the studio was empty, we took the, the floorboards, the walls, and, and the ceilings, the light fittings, the whole lot, um, except for the party wall, obviously, <laughs> the neighbour. Um, and we've reconstructed it in, in Dublin, and it's open to yeah. the public now. And it's a huge draw. People are fascinated to see an artist's studio. Yeah, well,
1: we're going to come back to that, because so um, there's Brett Whitelaw's studio here, and Margaret Olly, I believe, the studio is going to be right. preserved as well. So we'll, we'll come back to that. But I think it might be time to have a little uh, bacon advertorial. And um, Martin, you're first up, actually. Okay. So tell us, tell us about what we're looking at here.
3: Well, I, I, I sent these from London um, because it was suggested we might send a few pictures. And of course, then I hadn't seen the exhibition. But the, the way the attorneys laid out the exhibition um, helps explain this point. Um, and the, we were, it was suggested that I might speak about putting together a catalogue resume um, and I, I wanted to say, first of all, it's taken six years so far, it's running late and we're trying to string it out as much as possible, otherwise I'll have to get a real job, so, and it's kind of, don't tell the Bacon Estate that, they pay my wages, but. The, just a bit longer estate. But, I mean, one of the, we're not just skiving. One of the reasons is that we do get involved, it's true, with many side issues. A lot of the last year's been taken up with a bunch of lunatics from Italy who fake bacon drawings and have exhibitions all over the world. It, that's a digression we probably needn't go into. I bet, you, I bet you anything they'll be in Sydney soon, selling their wares. Um, oh, do you know them?
1: You've got a very knowledgeable laugh
3: going on here. Is Signor Averino here or his lawyer? A pox on you if you are. Um, I don't feel allowed dia- to threaten people. They're in diabolical Australia. things. We're talking about a great artist, and this is diabolical stuff. Um, yeah. And I, I didn't know what material from Dublin would be here exactly. Um, and this is just to demonstrate how um, Tony mentioned that, that about a definitive thing about interpreting his paintings. Equally, even the project of a catalogue Grey uh, is not definitive in that we're still only beginning to scratch the surface of coming to terms with his paintings in any sense you'd care to name. And you just learn things all the time. And I've said nice things to the media about this exhibition on radio and newspaper people, and they're sincere. I mean, it's beautifully lit, which means you can see the painting so well. I love this selection. And I've been in this morning for an hour and more, looking at things, taking notes, and I'll be back a lot. I mean, I'm learning so much from it, even because of the lighting about paintings that some I'm quite familiar with, some of the ones that live in Australia, and the gallery's own painting, the, the self-portrait from 1976 I'd never seen before, which is really exciting but I'm learning things about ones that I have seen before just because of the way they're lit. Now, I just wanted to demonstrate one point. It, it, and, and, you know, I'm a specialist. I'm sorry if it sounds a bit... Um, Please don't apologise for being but, a specialist. Um, no, but, I mean, I, I don't know how interesting this is to everybody on earth now. I see them up here. But the, this is an example. Really, it folds into Margarita's project in Dublin. It shows, in a way, um, I think what we're going to know, what Dublin's shown is... And, and these things were totally suppressed in all the Bacon literature before it has to be said. He, uh, everyone knew he looked at Mybridge's famous action sequence photographs and a few other things. It's so obvious there's no point denying it. There's about 85 million other things he looked at that were never admitted during his lifetime and only can be in a sense um, since, his, since his death. Um, And we're learning more and more all the time, but in a way the project will sort of annihilate itself because what we now know and can say quite definitively is just about everything he ever painted was in some sense based on a whole array of visual imagery. Never just one thing, it's very complicated, and we, we're still, it's, it's very early days in all of that research, and it's, a, it's an interesting thing, but in a way, we can say he didn't make preliminary drawings, or, ske- or he did very, very rough sketches, but no drawings, no drawings that anticipated the m- amazing painting he was going to make, because you can't anticipate spontaneity. Uh, and that, that element that he saw as chance and accident, so that it was never going to happen. So just to take literally, he was inspired by strange gestures and poses and things in photographs. What he took is often very strange, almost unfathomable sometimes. Anyway, the point of this is, there's a, the, 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 in the middle here, the, the upper and lower paintings are both in this exhibition. The one on the top um, uh, it, it comes from a Birmingham Art Gallery in England, Um, and the one beneath was loaned by the Bacon Estate. And I hope you can see there's a similarity of the poses. The formal arrangement is rather different. And it says on the wall of the lower one, um, this painting has been traditionally dated by the Bacon Estate uh, to 1952, and I would suggest it very much relates to the painting at the top, which is dated four years later. And in fact, the date's probably wrong. And and if if the estate, and that would include myself and Rebecca, had been asked to date it, we probably were. And we saw no reason at that time to change it from 1952. I'm just demonstrating how it's never finite. It's a fluid thing. Research goes on, you know. We're not making pronouncements from heaven here. It's the latest stage of thinking about things. And it's only the recent identification of the photograph on the bottom right here, which is actually an image from Picture Post magazine, uh, an English-illustrated magazine of, uh, uh, of the pre- and post-war period. It's a ni- an issue from 1947.
1: It's a bit hard to it's see a, what it is. It's a, it's it a, is. a bit Such fuzzy, a
3: actually, on yeah. the screen here. But what it shows is uh, the, the caption. It was a full page photograph in this magazine, and the caption says that it's a, a cameraman being mauled by a lion. Oh. It was a bunch of people from France who were actually... the papers exposing slightly they were posing as sort of scientists after the war really they were stealing animals to put in zoos mm. um, and one and there were things were being photographed and the lion actually started to maul a cameraman they saved his life but the but the pose here of the figure with this long, extended right arm is clearly based on this. And the way the knees of the cameraman come up here you see is reflected in Bacon's yeah. paintings. It's a very, very strange pose. And even in the painting at the top in Birmingham, you can see the line of the grasses here is somewhat reflected in the, what's Bacon, what Bacon has made into a curve. I'm sorry everyone if that's fuzzy and it's not immediately clear, but I, I don't no, think just, there's just any doubt mind. about that connection. Yeah. But the thing is in establishing that, it may relate to the painting at the top left, um, which is this is a, a copy that Bacon had. It's in the, the in Dublin now, um, and he kept reproductions of his own painting, sometimes to to draw over, like he's done on the bottom left he, He's experimenting with changing the composition. He never painted this, or at least it doesn't survive, with here a gray foreground. But that's a reproduction of the Detroit painting, the Crouching Nude, that's on the walls here from 1952. And it's the first Crouching Nude he did. Well, that itself may well relate to this. Mm. Um, And this has just thrown the whole debate about his crouching figures. And the Detroit painting, just to make one last little point on this, was terribly important to him. First of all, it was sold to a major American museum quite soon afterwards. And he always gave his paintings difficult titles you couldn't remember, they're so generic. So he always called it the Detroit painting. And in his note, he made notes very often of what he intended to paint. He made notes to himself, very interestingly. He'd write to himself, Francis, think of the Mybridge figure with. He'd write the word think of to himself, which is a very interesting way of putting it. Not just Mybridge figure jumping off or something or other, think of. Uh, and the were copious notes, usually in the fly leaves of other books and source material books. Um, very, very interesting. They were his true studies in a way, these notes. Mm-hmm. And occasionally a tiny sketch, like that big, a little rough sketch, he'd often refer later, this painting dates from 1952, and for many years he'd be doing versions of the Detroit painting. And he was always trying to get this figure, with its reflection, you'll notice the shadows and he was very involved with the figure, leeching out its own flesh, or the flesh building up into the figure, which you'll see in many paintings in this mm-hmm. exhibition. Um, the, the gallery's own self-portraits, very interesting example of that. And just at to the top right, finally I put a Matisse, the famous um, Baylors with turtles, because surely that was operating in here too, and there's a terrible tendency for people to say, oh, we've spotted a source, there's the answer to everything, life, death, and bacon, and it's not that simple. First of all, that would have resonated for him with the famous Matisse, you know, and there were many, many other things. This is just 1% of that story. Enough for everyone, I'm sure. Martin,
1: thank you very much. A round of applause for Martin, I think. Thank you very much, Martin. (laughs) Rebecca, I wanted to ask you about techniques for um, Francis Bacon and... Just in, in a kind of broad sense, like something when I was, uh, Josephine uh, was lovely and took me around the exhibition yesterday. And um, the thing that really stood out for me as being a complete sort of neophyte for Bacon is this thing of him painting on the wrong side of the canvas. What does what sort of results does that have, and and why did he do it?
4: Well, it appears that he did it because he wanted to make his life difficult. Because the paint leaches into the canvas, so you don't have the sort of if you like a protective layer that kind of is a safety net perhaps you could describe it as. So it's much harder to paint over and once a paint's on it, it's on it. So in a way maybe that added to the sense that he, his painting was like gambling and chance because it either came off or it didn't and consequently he is quite well well known for destroying a lot of his canvases if they didn't work. Yeah. Why he wanted to do it on the other on, on the wrong side is not apparently clear, but he did it from quite early on in his career. So it became his sort of trademark.
1: And Tony, how did how did Francis Bacon's techniques um, in painting develop over the years?
2: What was that mean? For you, Tony, um, yeah. Well, I think you can see if you go through um, most of the works in that front room, which I think we're going to talk about, Later, uh, relate to the figures of the crucifixion, and they've got a certain formal resonance. You know that that kind of, and again, this is one of those things: is this Hitler laying flowers at his parents' grave? Is it the Magdalene from the Arena Chapel uh, by Giotto? You know uh, what? What actually is? There are lots of different kind of possible sources for that figure of Eric Hall um, or Eric Hall's overcoat minus Eric Hall. Um, in Hyde Park, in that first room. That, that's a very particular set of works, quite complete to themselves. Um, you move into the 50s and you've got this kind of overall fairly fast painting. The guy doesn't have a studio much of this time, he's travelling around. He's going to Africa to visit his mother and sister. Um, he's going to Monaco to try and make a few bob. Um, he's going to visit Peter Lacey in Tangier. Mm-hmm you know, and and, um, staying in people's apartments in London. So he's almost itinerant, and and he often painted series, Men in Suits, for example, you know, uh, for one exhibition, and they would happen quite quickly. And... um, Was he a swift painter? Well, those obviously painted... Well, actually, when you look, you realise they're not quite as swift as you think because there's a lot of building up going on underneath. Now, I'll come back to that when we talk about it too, but... Um, but from 61, once he moves into uh, Rhys-Mews, it's like, you know, complete change. And, and that's why when you get to the end of the 50s room, we turn the orange wall on, and you get two works from the 60s introducing the next room. Um, and you can see immediately all the kind of brushwork that's concentrated into the figure. Um, and whereas, you know, in the 50s, the figures kind of dissolving into the field and this overall kind of manipulation of the field, um, it suddenly becomes the concentrated energy of the paint, right slap in the middle, and the field is simplified down into quite strong color planes around it, mm. often with Dulux or some kind of alkid-bound pigment. But um, so, I mean, I think that's dramatically different, and it's kind of why I ended that '50s room with two paintings from the '60s because you can just see it turning the corner. Uh, and when you move into the '70s, I mean, I've rather cheated by making almost all the paintings. Um, Reflection on George Dyer whether they're sort of nominally George Dyer or not. I actually have to tell you this morning I went in with Daniel Craig um, Who James Bond before he became James Bond was actually George Dyer in in love is the devil And he knew so much about George Dyer, and and he just said that's George. That's George. That's George. yeah, Quite right.
1: And was he lovely? Sorry. I just have to ask.
2: Sorry? <laughs> yeah,
1: you have to know don't you was he lovely?
2: He was terrific, and, right. um, and he, he, I have to say, he, he, I asked him, I said, can I tell people about this? Because his minders were a bit sort of... And he said, just tell them I loved it. So I think, OK, thank and you. Um, and what did he
1: say? How did he say it compared to uh, the Tate exhibition?
2: Well, he did actually say he thought it was rather better than the Tate. Oh. but. Yeah. <laughs> hey!
1: get on you, Tony. Can it's I very just, modest. Can I
3: just say, well, he's showing off, spanking about Sydney's great show. Just want me to keep it short, Martin. What? Keep it short, did keep you Keep it say? short! OK, just to add, you said uh, how, did it did take a long time. He seldom took more than two weeks, and since I don't sleep here in Sydney yet, and it's the espresso keeping me going, about 3.30 at night I have these profound thoughts. And I remembered, I knew we were coming here today, um, and I didn't know what you were going to ask, obviously, but he painted Cecil Beaton, the famous photographer in 1960. He was a friend... Uh, and destroyed it because Beaton was a bit shocked how weird he looked, and so Bacon cut it to bits straight away, so we don't have it. But Beaton was very attentive, painted a bit himself, obviously a serious portrait photographer, and described it. And no one makes enough of this because he described... Bacon very, very seldom painted in front of the model. He preferred to work from photographs, so this is a rare exception. There are only really four other sitters, and he didn't really paint what was in front of him anyway, and he wasn't with Cecil, probably painting some monster. But he, he described how he ran back and forth from the canvas in gazelle-like steps, I think, uh, and Beaton describes his legs and so on because he thought he was gorgeous or something. But he, it was very much a performance in the studio, which is never recorded anywhere else, and I find this really important, and it sort of relates to what you're asking, I think. It, it was a fast performance, and he usually... You know, he's one of his he, phrases was he aimed to trap this living fact alive... And I think why they still resonate for us now, certainly for me, is I mean, looking at the things this morning in there, b- because I think he did so often, they're alive now. The blood's still coursing through the veins as we look at yeah. them. I think that's part of his, a key part of his greatness. He did trap this living, how on earth can you do that in a flat painting? Uh, he did, that's why he's great.
1: Margarita, um, one of the things that you talked about is these books and books of, of photographs and. These weird, this weird kind of manipulation of photographs. So d- how did he use the photographs in his
5: painting? Well, uh, Josephine, if you can see the, the image there of the, the, um, the Deacon photos. Yes, here we, here we have a good example of how Bacon used his photographic material. Um, these are all photographs taken by a friend of his, a man called John Deacon, who was a Vogue uh, photographer. And Bacon commissioned Deacon to actually take these photographs. So many of the individuals or the, all the individuals represented here feature in the portraits in this exhibition. So you have Isabel Rosethorn there at the very top And you have George Dyer there on the right, George Dyer in the studio, and then the two photos here of Lucy and Freud. But of course, looking at these, we are immediately struck by the condition of the photographs. And this is is more than just the simple wear and tear of being on the floor in the studio. These are manipulations that Bacon made because, as Martin said, he'd all but eliminated the live model, you know, by um, the time that he commissioned Deacon to produce these photographs. And if we just uh, look, for example, at the the photograph of George Dyer, which I I think is interesting. He met George Dyer. He was from the east end of London, a petty criminal, and they became lovers in the 1960s. Um, Quite a turbulent relationship, and and George Dyer was quite a self-destructive individual. He attempted suicide in 1968 and eventually died then in Paris in 1971, just before Bacon's great exhibition at the Grand Palais. Um, this photograph was taken um, in 1965, which is just you know, a couple of years after Bacon moved into the studio, and we can see already that the, the, the clutter is already very apparent. And uh, Dyer, of course, features heavily in many of the portraits. I mean, he's a ubiquitous presence, really, throughout the, the even after his death in 1971. So he's a very, very important um, individual. Um but you can see as you say the, the, the photograph is very in very poor condition. Similarly with the photograph of Lucien Freud, and I'm I i do not know whether the viewers can see it, but you can see that there's you can see the manipulations that Bacon made with the material. He's actually deliberately created this crease here and it's held in place with two paper clips, mm-hmm. uh, one at the top and one at the bottom here. And the reason why is because he's interested in the pose of the leg. And again, that pose can be used, obviously, for portraits of Lucian Freud, but also for other individuals as well. And I think that's the interesting thing about Bacon, that things, for example, the portrait of of John Edwards from 1988 that's um, in the show here, you have George Dyer's legs with John Edwards' head. So there's this sort of transmutation going on.
1: And there's no attempt to hide that, is there? No,
5: no, there isn't, no. And then, of course, um, Isabel Rostorn, which I who I think has amazing features and just seen the something almost Egyptian, you know, like ancient Egyptian art in terms of the her features, Um, she was one of Bacon's two really close female friends, the other being Henrietta Mores. and she was a set designer, she posed for Picasso, Duran um, and was an artist herself and a very uh, close friend, she was a lover of the Swiss sculptor Giacometti whom Bacon also admired. And he went on to produce um, some stunning portraits of Mm -hmm. Isabel Rosethorne. But all this damage, this is, as I said, it's not incidental. Much of it is deliberate. And these creases and tears and manipulations are very, very important in terms of understanding Bacon's work. And there are over 300 Deakin photographs uh, found in the studio. 129 of them are, in fact, of George Dyer. Mm -hmm. So uh, they're very, very important in terms of looking at Bacon's material.
1: You do sort of wonder what Bacon would have done um, had he been living in the digital age, you know, how he would have then... Well, I suppose that's
5: that's the fascinating thing about Bacon studio as well, because yeah. you know, for we'll say a contemporary artist nowadays, the the studio can be you know somebody producing installations or conceptual work. The studio is, is a very different space, you know, um, whereas. I think the thing about Bacon is he was so obsessed with this. I mean, I'd like to think that he was traditional and he would always have gone back to the books and magazines, and newspapers, photographs, because, as as Martin said, I mean, the links are, are you know, where he is looking for, for the material and how he uses it is, is so important. And, you know, things that you don't expect at all, the sources, you know, can be very, very oblique. In terms of his work.
1: Yeah. Do you sort of feel that um, now you're going to go out into the world and look at things in a bacon bacon esque sort of way? (laughs) I wonder if there's a bacon app that you can get on your phone. (laughs) Um, Hey, Rebecca, maybe it's a good time to have a look at at your um, image that you would like to talk about. So, um, Josephine. Yeah. Rebecca's image.
4: These are, this is. This started off with um, one of the other reasons, in a way, we've been distracted with the catalogue raisonné is that in the last couple of years, an extraordinary number of um, archives have come up. Um, in particular, David Sylvester and an art critic, Robert Melville, and I'd been going through Robert Melville's um, as yet uncatalogued material at the Tate, and as well as looking at, he, he was probably one of the earliest writers on Bacon. And Although his writing quality varies, he he's, has some incredibly pertinent things to say from quite early on. So I was interested to look at him, but also who else he was writing about at the time. And as an expat Aussie, it, I was quite shocked to see that after Bacon, the most material he'd written on anyone was on Sidney Nolan. And he had a, there's a huge file just on Nolan. He had all the catalogs. He'd followed him from very early on, from when he arrived in London. And... Amongst the photographs in this box was a picture of this painting, Death of a Poet, which is um, a painting of the death mask of Ned Kelly, one of the most unusual Ned Kellys he did because, as Rosenthal points out, it's the only actual portrait of him. He hasn't got the armour on, it's just him. Mm -hmm. And he'd just come back from Italy in November 1954 and had a studio in Paddington in London and painted this work, uh, probably slightly influenced by all the religious painting he'd, he'd seen there. But it just struck me as quite extraordinary because in January um, 1955, Gerard Sherman, the composer, had asked Bacon to do a cover for uh, some works that he was writing about William Blake, and they'd gone to the National Portrait Gallery together. And this is, in a way, it's just a bit of further research I've been doing since we wrote the um, catalogue entry because it wasn't quite known exactly when Bacon had painted this work. And I've now found out he actually had painted it by the 1st of February, 1955, because the Hanover Gallery purchased it at that date. So it means that these paintings were painted two months apart, which is quite fascinating, because they, I, I, to me, have quite a similar atmosphere of these very solid yeah. sculptures. Although William Blake is actually a life mask, he looks grimmer than Ed Kelly... Um, <laughs> And just having these sculptural figures floating in space, obviously you've got the foliage around the um, Nolan work, but it, it, it just really sort of shocked me, um, struck me as quite interesting. Mm. I was trying—I've been trying to find out whether they knew each other, and it's proving incredibly problematic. I think they must have had some acquaintanceship because they had so many links in common. And not least, Robert Melville and a lot of the critics writing about them. Sylvester had written about both of them when when Nolan had arrived in London. How, um, how
1: would you find out though? Like, where do you go to find out? whether Sidney Nolan ever met Francis Bacon?
4: Well, it's just really going through... And that's why I haven't yeah. really finished looking. I've been trying mm. to speak to people um, who knew him, um, just through the gallery, through archives. For example, there is a telegraph in the Marlborough archive when Bacon died from Nolan, and it just said, sorry to hear about Francis Sydney." So they obviously had a relationship. I've also just recently been up to the Sydney Nolan Trust, and they showed me a painting that Nolan actually painted a portrait of Bacon in 1984 a spray-painted portrait I don't know if did, you couldn't get it up okay never mind we, we were trying to get it up at the last minute but couldn't um, and and that was quite interesting because Bacon's got a very grumpy expression on his face and just interestingly when you go through what was happening in his life in that year he was obviously having quite an upsetting year he'd been drinking a lot he was very sick quite often through the year he'd been really altering a lot of paintings in that year and destroying some. So I, that sort of made me think maybe he did, you know, have some quite yeah. connection with him there. But it's still ongoing research. And,
1: um, Rebecca, I was sort of thinking about these two pieces in a musical sense, and I'm mm. sort of thinking Men at Work, Kookaburra mm. Sings in, a, in the Old um, Something Tree. Um, you know, they, they really are very, very similar, aren't they? Yeah. That if, if these were two pieces of music, then you can imagine one suing the other. Oh, really, yeah. For copyright. Yeah. Well,
4: I still would, don't would know. I think now the fact... Because this... this um, the Bacon painting was exhibited in... Um, sorry, the Nolan painting was exhibited in May 1955 at the Redfern Gallery. Yeah. So I'd sort of wondered if Bacon had painted it later, he might have seen it there, but obviously he didn't because it had been yeah. painted by February. So unless he'd known Nolan and seen it in the studio it's, or the painting had been in the Redfern Gallery earlier on, Yeah. it could just be a coincidence. I, th- I
1: think he's in the clear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, But that does lead us on to, to Tony talking about Francis Bacon's Australian connections, because there's quite a few, aren't there?
2: There are, and, and these guys wrote the chapter for the catalog on that. Yeah. Um, but it, it's fascinating. Yeah, the, um, his father, Eddie Bacon, was born in Adelaide. Uh, was it his grandmother was Lady Charlotte? Yeah, who had at one stage had a, a relationship with Byron. In fact, became the model, apparently, for Anthony in Byron. And I gathered, drove around in Adelaide with Byron's crest on the carriage. Oh, so there's a sort of overtness in the family that goes back three generations. at least. Anyway, so there's that. Um, of course, Francis kind of loathed while having a sexual attraction to his father, so he said later. Um, so possibly that's why he never came back to Australia, actually. He's sort of not anywhere near his dad's place. Anyway, so there's that. When he eventually arrives in London um, in 29, uh, he very quickly meets Roy De Maistre, um, who um, encourages him to paint in oils. He'd done some watercolours, but he was mainly doing furniture design. Um, introduces him to Patrick White, who commissions the desk, which everyone here probably knows about, with well, the one with the mm-hmm. lino, red lino top, which he had replicated when he came back to Sydney because he sold the one he had in London, ah. which is now in the Mitchell Library. Anyway, uh, so there's that connection. Um, he also bought one of the coffee tables, which I think appear in a lot of the paintings as these circular, tubular frames. Anyway, um, so there's those connections. We, we, You know, we love to speculate about the Nolan. I was really pleased that you brought that up in the book, because although it is still speculation, it, it's so there at the right time in the right place that it's very tempting and the images themselves and and the thing that really fascinated me was to put mrs fraser sort of decomposing back into the landscape next to uh, a mybridge parented child i think that was extraordinary you're going to have to get the book i'm sorry because you know we can't talk but there's a lot of material in there which i think is really really useful
1: Absolutely. Um, now, unfortunately, time is getting upon us. So, Margarita, I thought we could go to you and talk, so that you could talk about the image yep. that you'd like to talk about.
5: Yeah, well, this is, um, this is one of the paintings from the exhibition. This is Pope I, Study of Pope, Innocent X after Velasquez, and it dates from 1951. So you have this Bacon painting here on the right-hand side, and then you have uh, the painting on which Bacon based it. Now, the interesting thing, I suppose, about two of Bacon's great series of paintings, his series after Van Gogh, uh, a painting by Van Gogh, which was um, destroyed in World War II, so Bacon never saw it. And then this painting here, which is Velasquez's um, papal portrait from 1650. It's in the Doria Pamphili Gallery in Rome. And it really is a work unrivaled, I suppose, in papal portraits. And you can see that from the, the menacing um, expression on Pope Innocent X's face. Just out of interest, how large is that is that painting? Well, that painting, actually, the last time I saw it, which is about 12 years ago, it's actually, it's kind of, beho- it's in a separate sort of alcove. Yeah. It, um, it's bigger than it is, obviously, on, on uh, the screen, It would from memory. Um, I don't know the exact dimensions, but it would be probably from the base of the screen. Up to the top. And it's you go in as uh, sort of it's it's just exhibited by itself, at least wow. it was 10 or 12 years ago, and it's just a very striking work. But the interesting thing about it is that Bacon actually never saw it in reality, and he went on to base his over 40 paintings on that particular work, the portrait of Pope Innocent X. I mean, he said he described himself as having a crush on the painting. And we That's were a bit more of a crush. Yeah, a crush. yeah yeah and then later on he said that um, you know that they were all rather silly those paper portraits that he did himself because that work obviously was unrivaled and he felt that he couldn't compete with a master such as Velasquez. And you can see, I mean, we found in the studio um, reproductions such as this one here. This one is from a book that was published in 1940 on Velasquez. And again, you can see the paper clips at the bottom, obviously to hold it uh, in his hand or, or possibly place it on an easel to the right of his main easel. And you'll notice as well it's in black and white, and many of the the reproductions were in in black and white. So many books on Velázquez, and in particular this work. But this work really, I suppose it haunted Bacon um, for a time, as did the the Van Gogh, but later on he he dismissed it. Um, And I think, um, I suppose he, he... I can see obviously I mean Velasquez is a great colourist and you can see obviously um, links obviously between Bacon who was also um, a great colourist but I, that work really was a very very important work for his um his career and he said it was the first one that he really um, you know, it was the fir- his first real subject. But I think the important thing is that he actually never went to see it in reality, even though he did visit Rome. And we were hoping as we were going through the studio contents that we might find a ticket for the Torre Pamphili Gallery in, in the contents. But no, he, he definitely didn't see it in reality. So he knew it from reproduction. So again, it highlights the importance of photographic reproductions yeah. um, for Bacon's at work.
1: There seems to be consistently, through all this information about Bacon, a sort of sense of removal, you know, that he loved this so much, but he loved it so much that he couldn't go and see it. Yes. That he wanted to paint somebody so much, but then he got somebody else to take a photograph of them and then didn't even use that photograph, like he used a photograph of somebody else. So, I mean, i just kind of throw the question open to all of you. What what do you read into this for Bacon...
5: With his photographs, I mean, for example, with the deacon photographs, he said that he didn't want to practice the injuries that he was going to practice on the sitter with them present. So I suppose it gave him a certain amount of freedom. Um, That's so, very polite of him. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there, there is that. And then, um, of course, I mean, you can see why he may have avoided going to see the Velasquez painting. He couldn't have seen the Van Gogh painting because, it, as I said, it was destroyed. He only knew it from reproduction. And again, there is one of the, that Van Gogh series in this, this exhibition here, a very beautiful painting from 1957 but um, I suppose it, again as I said it, it highlights that that, that idea of, of I suppose working away in the confines of your studio without any you know other human presence
1: Yeah, Martin what, what do you reckon about that kind of slight it seems rem- removal
3: would you agree or um you mean in terms of, I mean, the thing he did, he made so many statements, which are good to quote, and they don't bear much analysis. He, uh, he, exactly as Margarita said, he didn't want to practice the injury. Well, there's some great self-portraits in this exhibition. I, was he injuring himself? Is that different to injuring a friend? I'm not really sure what that meant and lots of his oracular statements, they're just kind of soundbite things. What exactly does that mean? Can we dig into it? I, I, I mean, I don't, I'm one of those people that don't believe many of his paintings have to do with violence, and he often said, well, I don't know what you mean. Um, my, my, my daughter's here and my grandson lives here in Sydney, and I smoke, I'm proud to say. And the cigarettes have, the, you don't just die of cancer here, you, you go blind and all sorts with the pictures. And, and there's, there's a picture on the cigarette packet I bought here and it says cigarettes cause blindness and there's a most horrific photograph, eyes being gouged, this is a new one on me. And my grandson, who was doing great Bacon Pope screams here in the gallery last night, but was terrified of this cigarette warning. And that's kind of more horrific than anything Bacon painted. And the paintings didn't disturb him too much. Not many have to do with violence in the end. Some are very tender. There's all sorts of emotions in there. The whole gamut.
2: That was a very strong thing. Somebody asked me on the radio the other day to contrast Freud and Bacon, and I cast There's so many things you could talk about. But I thought in the end, well, there's something objectifying and cold about all of Freud's things. They're beautiful in their way, but they're not tender or affectionate. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so often, going through the Bacon exhibition, you find moments of real tenderness and, and affection uh, which grew on me and I think once you start looking for that, you'll find it.
4: Mm. There's actually also an interview with Henrietta Mores at, at an exhibition and they ask her about you know, do, do, do you get offended by the violence he did to you and she was like of course not, it wasn't violence, you know, she loved the paintings of herself. So... Whether it was just that he... You know, it wasn't just he just didn't want the people there. And, uh, and you would sort of think of the type of people he was painting. They were sort of artistic in themselves, people like Isabel Rawson. You could imagine that they wouldn't have thought that in any case. And obviously Henrietta didn't herself.
1: Yeah. Now, as so many of his paintings have this... Uh, ..what, a sort of box-like structure around it that's been interpreted, interpreted in so many different ways. Um, can I ask each of you for your interpretation? of it margarita you want to go first
5: yeah we were i was discussing this actually last night as well i mean obviously there is the 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 link is obviously made with the fact that bacon was a furniture designer and produced um you know these sort of tubular steel tables etc um i mean i i just think it, it for me it fixes the figure you know it contains them to have that sort of rectilinear um structure Obviously, it's more apparent in works such as um, f- from the 1950s. But um, you know, I suppose, and, and particularly with the Screaming Pope series, where the the figure, there is that sense of of you know silent confinement to a degree. But I think it just, it, I suppose, it focuses your focuses your eyes as well on the central area. I know there's been lots of different interpretations, and yeah. Eichmann's cage, etc. These have all been um, mm. referred to. But I, 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 for me, visually, that's what it does. It yeah. just focuses on directly on the figure. And I think that's, you know, obviously in the 1970s, looking at his works, that seems to be where the backgrounds are much more matte compared to the striations of the, the 1950s. Um, again, you know, I think it's it's just that sense of focus. But I'm sure Martin or, or Tony well, have.
2: Saying, I mean, I agree with that. I mean, obviously, it's framing, staging, um, isolating the figure. Mm. But what's really interesting, you find, um, and it starts quite early on, but it's more obvious getting into the 60s and 70s, that those space frames are as improbable um, as Alba's impossible figures. I mean, sometimes the line that seems to be the front of the box comes down behind the figure and appears at the front, down below. And and it's as if... um, And and with those male figures at the male back, um, which is George Dyer shaving you know, again, the the, the structures sort of cut through the figure or go through and come out in the wrong place kind of thing. And it's like he's weaving the figures almost into the warp and weft of the canvas. You know, And you can think of that as entrapment or or about playing with the the pictorial plane or whatever you want to think about it. And I imagine all of the above.
4: I think also when when Bacon writes, um, in the notations Martin was talking about earlier, when he writes notes to himself about his paintings, he always refers to it as a cage, which is possibly quite telling. And,
1: I mean, it's probably far too simplistic an interpretation, but is it correct that as a boy he was not exactly caged but he was shoved into a cupboard by his dad if he'd been... Is that, is that not true?
3: I've heard all sorts of versions of okay. that one. I mean, you know, the, the, it's the dead drunken stories. some of them. He had to witness his nanny having sex with an Irish soldier or something and he was locked in a cupboard and people would say oh so that must have been really traumatic on the contrary it was the making of me you know it's just (laughs) it's a kind of good story I don't believe many bacon stories. So do you
1: think that's where J.K. Rowling got uh, Harry Potter the idea of Harry Potter? I I mean
3: I don't know it it could be absolutely true I I, I wasn't there I promise but that I don't I don't believe it for what it's worth I mean uh, even if there's a version like it his nanny was actually knocking on a bit by then as well, and not that you can't have sex, but I was going to the, say,
1: Martin, it doesn't make any difference.
3: I hope, well, I hope not. I'm. <laughs> <laughs> on a bit the, that's,
1: it's maybe because we're, we're kind of coming to the end of the discussion now. Um, I wanted to ask you each about the legacy of Francis Bacon. How do you see his influences coming down into painters today, Margarita?
5: Well, I I think that obviously it's testament to Bacon 20 years after his death. There's still such interest in his work, um, you know, and that, that obviously was evident yesterday at the opening. And mm-hmm. I think it's terrific that, you know, shows such as these are being put on. And like that, there were a lot of young artists at the, the opening last night. So, I mean, definitely Bacon is somebody who resonates as a painter. And I think as well as that, I mean just to, to make the point about the, the you know, actually seeing the paintings in the flesh, so to speak, I think that's very important with Bacon, because it's all very well seeing them reproduced in books. But I think if you if if and that's why I think he's, he really is a painter's painter, you know, seeing them close up and seeing the the beautiful tones that he uses colours and the way that he applies paint, I think that's that's what um grasps people's attention. And I agree with Martin too about that that horrific quality that that people refer to, I don't see it at all. Mm. I I think they're works of great beauty that he's obviously laboured over and they're they're stunning works. Um, And I think that 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 obviously is his legacy and I think his work obviously will stand the test of time. Mm.
1: Tony, what do you see as as his legacy?
2: Well, I said before, I think that anybody who tries to do Bacon is is doomed to failure. Um, But I think... For myself as a young student, and I think for most artists I talk to, it's of course you love the sheer vivacity, the complexity of the paint. You know, I mean, the paint goes on with, with thick paint with a brush, sand mixed into it, dabbed into with bits of fabric that leave traces and bits of the fabric, um, you know, all of those things. Um, the spray paint that becomes a way of making a granular surface, all these things he uses are quite spectacular. And the great thing being, because they're under glass, A, you've got to get up close to sort of get round the reflection. B, you can get up close, and you'll see all these things going on, which are quite extraordinary. You can't go out and do it, I'm afraid, because Bacon's done it. Um, But what people really respond to, I think, is as much the ideas. Because behind that cloud of champagne bubbles, there's actually quite an interesting little brain going on. He's a bit of a philosopher, and, and if you start to... I mean, Martin says, "Well, what does that mean then? But if you start thinking about some of the things that he says actually it begins to be you know between consciousness, unconsciousness, all the problems about representation, you know, about critical faculties and chaos and chance, you know all these juxtapositions. How do you get I mean for me, the whole Heideggerian problem of you know, consciousness and matter, um, how does the artist sort of get into that crack? Um, and I think that's what he did, and I think people respond to that. Mm.
1: Thank you, um, Martin. Would you say that that kind of line from Francis Bacon through to artists, say like Damien Hirst, is is there a clear relationship? No.
3: Um, no. I threw these questions no, to you, Martin. Bacon, you- was, Bacon was really great. I'd like to. I'd like to answer a different question, if I may. Please I know you're going ask, to be, ask your you. own thank question. Thank you, Emma. No, no, it no, is partly relating to what was said before. <laughs> I mean, I'm agreeing with what Margarita and Tony said, but we touched this question of being horrific, and it's—I'm not being so egotistical as I usually am here. I, I hope you will buy the catalogue to the exhibition, and if you do. Um, there'll be an essay from someone who's not here and I haven't had a chance to speak to Tony he couldn't come from Holland presumably by Ernst van Alphen and there may be some of you I don't know you all obviously who are serious art history students at universities here or whatever and Ernst van Alphen would represent that kind of of academic teaching and approach to Bacon and he wrote a book uh, I've got many criticisms but it's a very important book called Francis Bacon The Loss of Self which is one of the I'm sure key texts in universities in academia throughout the world and he has an essay in the catalogue and it's called Making Sense of Affect. If you're not familiar with the concept of affect, what he's talking about is the effect that Bacon paintings have on us and they're never looked at that way mm-hmm. and this is where the loss of self come in, comes in. It, it's a complicated argument but he boils it down into some very six or seven accessible pages here and that's an, an interesting contribution um, and I found it uh, interesting um, but and, and I think he's more Affected by them than that in terms of their horror um, than myself and perhaps many of us would be, but nonetheless, it's really worth reading uh, in terms of how they do affect us.
1: Okay, uh, Rebecca, how about you and his Well, legacy? I
4: think yeah for, for younger artists, as Tony was saying, um, Damien Hirst actually recently did an exhibition in London where he returned to painting, and the paintings that he did were all just considered to be totally derivative of Bacon. I mean, incredibly kind of close and derivative. And this exhibition was totally canned. Um, People saying things like, please, Damien, stop, it's not because I don't like you, it's because I'm telling you don't go there. And so, in a sense, I think if an artist does try to really look at him very closely and imitate it, he's doomed to failure, as Tony's been saying. But on another hand, other artists... I've met a young British artist recently who's a landscape painter and she's been very influenced by his colour and did two series of sort of room-sized landscape works just using his background colours set against each other, orange in one and the pink in the other, sort of two very, very prominent colours in his oeuvre, and that worked out very successfully. So I think he is
5: very influential, but not necessarily in obvious ways. Yeah. Just apropos Damien Hurst. actually one of the last letters that we actually have in the archive... Um, he wrote to an Irish artist, Louis Le and he mentioned that he had been to see Damien Hirst, a young artist called Damien Hirst. He'd been to see a thousand years at the Satchi collection, and this was literally in the March um, before he died himself, in the April. And he he really he really liked it. But I think it was probably the original the the sense of originality of of Damien, the young Damien Hirst, then, where he was looking at life, birth, decay, and the whole thing of meat as well in a thousand years. That probably appealed to Bacon.
1: Yeah. Tony, we're going to close with your chosen image. Of oh, Francis I'm glad you're Bacon. going to do that. Yeah,
2: right. I was wondering about that. <laughs> we're on. Yeah, now, this, this one's in Belfast, and um, it's totally exceptional because, as uh, Martin said, normally the works would have been finished in weeks, if not one or two sessions. Um, this one he spent four and a half months on, apparently, and uh, it's unique. He described the surface as being like rhinoceros hide, I think. Um, and I went having a really good look at it because it was fascinating. It is so different. It reminded me of those Monet late water lilies, you know, that really, cr- in, in the orangery, a really crusty surface. So the liquid brush stroke that comes in at the end skids across that surface. James Elkins has written very eloquently about it. The long bow, perhaps. But, but anyway. Um, and I was looking at this and, and thinking about that and, and how does he build up this incredible horizontal structure? If you look at it, you know, in those curtains, um, the paint is bouncing across these horizontal structures. And I thought he must have built up an undercoat uh, using sort of flake white or something really sticky. This is one of the first works that were painted on the back of the canvas. He'd, by primed canvas, turn it over um, because, you know, as Rebecca said, once you make a mark, it's there, it's the final throw of the dice. If you put it on the prime side, you can take some turps and wipe it off again. So, uh, And it's much faster on the prime side, slower. But what happened, uh, looking at the, the work, when we got it out of its packing case, the one from Melbourne, the figure that's moving through the curtains in that first room, uh, there's a lot of raw linen canvas showing there. Uh, and then there's these vertical stripes that build up in intensity towards the middle of the painting, behind the figure, or head, whatever it is, In this case, the figure. Um, And I realised that what was actually happening was he was using this very dry, sticky, probably a mixture of flake white and something else, which you can't get anymore. It's a lead thing, you know. It's really gunky paint. Terrific, actually. Anyway, dragging this dry brush down across the weft, is it, the horizontal things, in the canvas. And it's quite a... You know, it, it, it doesn't look like a heavily textured canvas, but the brush jumps from weft To weft, leaving a trace. And as he comes back with subsequent layers, um, it builds up. So you get this horizontal structure derived by making vertical strokes. And it has a transparency to it, um, which, because I'm talking about the description of a diaphanous curtain here, and it looks diaphanous. Um, And even in that Belfast one where it's rhinoceros hide, um, actually it still, in a sense, looks diaphanous. And that told me a lot about painting on the back of canvas which I didn't know until I actually had a really good look um, when it arrived. I I should have looked before in Melbourne, but I hadn't looked closely enough. And that's what I think the main reason for doing this exhibition was, because if you've only ever looked at Francis Bacon books, you have no idea what's going on. Uh, And we wanted to have an opportunity, and I've chosen as many works that really do have, I think, material qualities that are surprising, that are worth looking at.
1: Well, Tony, thank you. Thank you for giving us all a chance to now go really, really close to a Bacon painting and be able to see as as much as we can see. Thank you so much for your work. And thank you to all our panellists for today. So Martin on the end, a round of applause for Martin. (laughs) Martin, um, how long are you staying around in Australia?
3: Oh, another 10 days or so.
1: Oh, okay, great. Lovely to have you here. And Rebecca, originally from Australia, but going back to London London. quite soon, right? Yeah, she's staying. (laughs) Okay, have a good flight. (laughs) Tony Bond and Margarita Kapok. Thank you so much, all of you. you. And um, thank you for being a lovely audience. And also a round of applause for our Sandy for today, Alison and Josephine on the slides. Thank you. Well,
0: thank you. Thank you very much to, uh, to Emma Ayers, everybody, for a wonderful, being a wonderful host. Thank you all very much for coming along to today's forum. It's uh, been wonderful to see so many of you here on the first day of the exhibition. Um, We hope you enjoy the Francis Bacon Show and can come along to more of our programs. There's a a brochure available or you can have a look online for more free programs coming up. Um, I'd also like to thank my colleagues in public programs for helping us put today together. And uh, thank you all for coming. Enjoy your day at the gallery.